Well, good morning. morning. Welcome to Holy Cross. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. That was quite a gospel text we just read, wasn't it? That was enough to make a thoroughly evangelical church like Holy Cross quite nervous. It almost sounds like Jesus is saying generous people can buy their way into heaven. Or alternatively, if you're not generous enough, you could end up in the other place. So whatever happened to salvation by grace without works? Mm. Well, let's just leave that there for a moment. We might come back to that thought in a little bit. And let me invite you to take out this yellow handout here this morning. You will need that because we don't have time to cover all these verses, but they're there in front of you. Now, I'd like you to stick with me here this morning, okay? I think there's something very beautiful here to be said and intensely practical for all of us. So just keep listening. Now, all of us know that Paul was an evangelist. He planted churches all over the Gentile world. And when you look at Acts 16 and 17, it tells us about Paul's second missionary journey. Let's see if this works. Second missionary, there it is. All right, there we got it. All right. So Paul left Syria down there on the right-hand side, and he worked his way literally around the Aegean Sea, and when he came to Macedonia, he landed near the city of Philippi. And there he was falsely accused. He was beaten with rods, cast into prison, locked into the stocks. Ouch. That's got to hurt. Yet, all that turned out for good, didn't it? Because the Philippian jailer actually came to the Lord. But, of course, that didn't make it hurt any less. Nor did it stop the persecution of the new Philippian converts. Their Roman neighbors confused them for Jews, and these particular Romans hated the Jews. They despised them, and they did everything they can to marginalize the Jews. And... Hence, they marginalized the new believers. They even carried out economic sanctions against them. So then Paul was forced to leave Philippi, and he went on to another city in Macedonia, Thessalonica. And yes, there were many converts, but yes, they also experienced there violent opposition from the Jews. The Jews even started a riot. The politarchs, or the rulers of the city of Thessalonica, weren't the least bit happy about the uproar. So Paul, once again, had to flee town, and the new believers were left holding the bag. If Jason ever let that Paul come back to town again, the politarchs would confiscate Jason's house and everything he owned. These new believers, who were formerly people of quite significant prominence in Thessalonica had become outcasts socially and economically. Conversion was a costly affair in Macedonia. Well, Paul continued on south, and in his evangelistic efforts, he finally came to a place called Corinth. Now, the situation there in Achaia or Greece was quite different than Macedonia, Life there in Corinth was live and let live. 
Corinth is what we would call a wide open city. It was a seaport. It was a sailor's liberty port paradise. Now, when I was a very young sailor, sailing the western Pacific, I heard stories about Alangapo in the Philippines. I could scarcely believe those stories until I saw the place with my own eyes. That was quite a sight for a very innocent 19-year-old to see. And when the government of the Philippines finally plowed Alangapo under the whole city, I promise you more than one angel in heaven was rejoicing. That was the kind of city ancient Corinth was. But not only were the Corinthians amoral, they were proud and they were prosperous. When they became believers, they carried on with many of these same attributes into their Christian life. Probably too many of them. Now, here's a little oh by the way, okay? When you read the Corinthians cor Corinthian correspondence, you need to understand the word irony. Keep the word irony in mind. So sure were these spiritually competent Corinthians that they had it all together, apparently sarcasm and irony was the only way Paul felt he could get through to them. And Paul uses plenty of it in the letters. He was concerned that maybe some of these Corinthian believers were not believers at all. Okay, so where are we going with all this, okay? Circumstances were about to demonstrate the character of the faith of the Macedonians on the one hand and the Corinthians on the other hand. Just before Paul's third missionary journey, a great famine came over Palestine. And the Jewish believers in Jerusalem were starving. So Paul set out on a campaign to help the saints in Jerusalem. Paul wrote letters to the converts in Asia, to the converts in Macedonia, and to the converts in Corinth. And he told them that they should be laying aside something each week and storing it up, saving it as a gift. And then he said, as you can see there in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, I am coming in person to collect the gift. Your guys and my guys, we're going to take the gift together back to Jerusalem. Now, the contrast between the Macedonians and the Corinthians could not be more profound. For all their wealth and all their vaunted spirituality, the only response Paul got out of the Corinthians was talk. Look what Paul says to them in 2 Corinthians 9, and remember the concept of irony here, okay? He says, now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which you boast to the people, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, seeing that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. Yeah, right. 
<laughs> Look what he says. But nonetheless, I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some of the Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated <laughs> to say nothing of you for being so confident. Now, in total contrast to all that Corinthian talk, here's the Macedonians' response. Look what Paul says in our New Testament text for the morning. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed, what? In a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Okay. The point of all these things is just this. You and I need to test. We need to assay the condition of our hearts. Gratitude naturally and without compulsion overflows into generosity. Now, do you see it? That is the point of Jesus' parable this morning. Jesus is not saying that your generosity will buy you away into heaven. But he is saying this. If you and I are already heaven-bound, then generosity will naturally mark all that we do. Now think about the response of the blessed. They said, Lord, we don't even remember these acts of generosity. We can't even recall whenever we saw you in need. Lord, it's just what we do. It's just the way we live because we have experienced your love and because we are heaven bound and because our hearts have been transformed. It's just what we do. Generosity is the mark of true conversion. I could stop right here and I've given you a nice little homily for Sunday morning. But then, you see, I would be a perfect Corinthian just giving you a lot of spiritual talk. But friends, this is Commitment Sunday and it is absolutely imperative if our faith is to be genuine that we talk in practicalities so we can actually do and act and actually live what our faith says. So I'd like to press on a little farther here, if I may. Okay. Generosity is the mark of true conversion. But let me ask you this question. 
what is generous? Generosity is one of those words like modesty. Everybody knows what it means until you're discussing skirt lengths with your daughter. So let me ask you this question again. What is generous? Let's take a moment to consider. Well, let's take one extreme, shall we? One extreme of generous. We could reasonably give away everything we own and live in near poverty, right? We could do that. Now stay with me here, right? Didn't Christ give up everything for you? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, isn't it true that everything we have, even our own bodies, belong to him? Now, don't we say that every Sunday? Oh, Lord, all things belong to you. So you see, we could live life and give away everything. But something doesn't seem quite right about that, does it? I actually tried to live that way for a while. <laughs> when I was a young sailor, I had a bed, a uniform, and a bunk. So what else did I need? So I just kept giving away my entire paycheck. The trouble was, I never seemed to have enough for basic necessities, like toothpaste and deodorant. And after a while, my friends started to take exception to my definition of generosity. Did you know you can be too generous? You see, what I didn't know at that time was God has a wisdom for money, just like God has a wisdom for every other aspect of our life. God has a plan for generosity that will bless you and build up your life in this world and keep you going in the direction of heaven. God has a special plan for generosity, and it is called the tithe. The tithe. By allowing the tithe to guide your generous heart, you can be sure that you're living life to the fullest as God intended for you as an individual to live it. Because we're not all intended to live the same kind of life. But all the while, you always have enough to meet all your obligations. Perhaps you will also even be able to leave something behind when you depart for heaven. God loves the heart that loves him through the tithe. And he has promised to bless it. Now, I know many of you here this morning know this verse, right? Malachi 3.10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until what? There is no more need. Does 
that mean you're going to win the lotto and move to Las Vegas? No, he goes on to explain what he means by that. He says, I rebuke the devourer for you, so it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Hey, pretty good stuff, huh? The tithe, however, has a context. All right? It has a context. It is only part of God's financial wisdom. Here is the general plan, the general financial plan that God has for the vast majority of believers. This is it. You ready for this? God wants us to save 10% for the future and future needs. Secondly, God wants us to give 10% to the tithe. And thirdly, he wants us to live on the 80%. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, hey, ain't no way. I could never, ever possibly do that. Well, just hear me out here, okay? Hear me out. This is a financial goal, okay? It provides a framework toward which we should move. Now, how many people here this morning want to fail in life? Please put up your hand. Hand up, please. Fail? Of course not. We all want success, don't we? But how to get it? Isn't that the question? How are you going to be successful? Well, this simple little plan, save some, give some, live on the rest, is a plan for financial success, is a plan for life success, in many different ways. It leads to success and well-being for your life here on the planet. It leads to success for the mission of your church and God's kingdom on the earth. And it leads to success for your soul's welfare and your heavenly journey. See, the Corinthians' worldly success was deceiving them about the condition of their souls. In contrast, God's plan for your finances is a plan that will make you successful in this world and the next. Now, what are some of the practical results of God's simple financial plan? Give some, save some, live on the rest. Well, first of all, God says, I'm going to bless you. Nowhere else in all of Scripture does God say this. Test me. The only place in all scripture you find this word. Test me. God says, put me to the test. Just see if I am not a living and present reality in your life. Test me. Test me. I'll bless you. Secondly, you will think about money in new ways. This is important. This is why this works. You will think about money in new ways. When you see all your income as your own, to do with it just as you darn well please, what happens? You're down in the mall, you see that beautiful new tablecloth, and guess what? It's only a hundred bucks. <laughs> but you see, when you begin to tithe and begin to save, that hundred dollars actually looks a little different to you. 
That $100 invested today at 4%, only 4% at the end of your life is $500. Hmm. You see money differently. Thirdly, you will find new self-discipline in financial matters. You know what the trouble with disposable income and credit cards is? It's like a chocolate chip cookie. Okay, you have one cookie. Great, it's fine, it's enjoyable. But pretty soon, you gotta have two, and then three, and then four, and before you know it, half the bag is gone. And you think, how in the world did I ever do that? I'll never be able to exercise this off tomorrow. And we just end up wearing that half a bag of cookies for the next five years. You know what I mean? Credit cards and disposable income rapidly turn to debt. Debt that we can't seem to shake no matter how hard we try. The first cookie? Well, it's okay. It's blessed. But maybe there's a time to stop. And this financial plan, tithing and savings, challenges us to self-discipline. Here's the fourth result of God's financial plan. God's work on earth will be provided for. God's work on earth will be provided for. Yes, it is through the tithe of God's people that the needs of the local church are met. I was actually at a conference a couple of weeks back, and we were talking about generosity. And the young millennial sitting next to me said, I'd never heard of that before, that the local church actually needs me? When I heard that, he said, I thought, well, sure, I can get on board. So, yes, folks, you are needed. The tithe is how the church is supplied. In fact, there are no other means. That's it. Finally, this financial plan will fill you with new joy and peace. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, who here this morning has ever tasted of the goodness of the Lord who has not said, I'll take more of that, please? But doggone it, I got all these worldly cares and expenses and debts and responsibilities. How am I ever going to be a serious Christian and escape the clutches of this world? You know what God says to you? God says, hey, chill, relax. Just use my little plan. I'll feed you with your necessary food, and I will keep your heart going in the right direction. I'll see that you don't get all tangled up and choked out by the thorns of this life, if you'll just try my plan. Well, hopefully I have spoken enough truth this morning that you're now thinking that this sort of makes sense. But maybe you feel like, man, I can't do that. I sure can't do it next month. Okay, fair enough. So my answer to you this morning is just get started. Start somewhere. 
Okay? Maybe it's only 2% to savings and 2% to the tithe and trying to sort out the rest and get out of debt. And then in six months, make it three and three. In another year, maybe it'll be four and four. But just get started. You know, that is the very thing that we are doing here at Holy Cross. In case you didn't know that. Five years ago, we were hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And we were spending money we didn't have. And every year, we were in the red. So in its wisdom, the chapter came up with a plan to get out of debt. And, and increase our giving by 1% a year. And lo and behold, today we're getting farther and farther out of debt. Our savings for the future needs around this property are beginning to grow. And, and we are actually giving more and more outside the walls of Holy Cross. Friends, the mark of true conversion is a generous heart. And God, in his marvelous wisdom, has given us a guide and a plan to nurture our generosity. My prayer is that God will give us all this morning grace just to get started. Amen.